The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania is the highest court in the Commonwealth and the oldest appellate court in the nation, an institution shaped by the skilled attorneys who argue before it. Welcome to the Standard of Review. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this, the first episode of the Standard of Review. I'm your host, Corey Woods. I'm a Pennsylvania appellate attorney, and before I started my practice, I worked for some time for the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. While I was there, the court made a lot of decisions that were intellectually interesting or practically impactful, but which weren't really being covered or at least covered in an accessible way. So when I started my practice, I started writing Scopa Blog. There you can find an entry each month summarizing the court's precedential holdings and its grants of new appeals. But from time to time, there are decisions that I'd like to examine more closely, whether they involve interesting issues of law, uh, issues of public policy, or issues about the legal profession and how we practice. On the standard of review, I'll be addressing one decision at a time by interviewing the people who know it best. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Our guest today is Ken Barrand. Ken Barrand is the principal owner of Barrand Law Group, LLC, a Pittsburgh law firm he founded in 2018. He's argued over 50 appeals before the appellate courts of Pennsylvania and has also argued before the United States Courts of Appeals for the First, Third, and Eighth Circuits, as well as the Supreme Court of West Virginia. The vast majority of the arguments are mostly concerning consumer protection issues within the insurance industry. Most recently, he argued before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and won the case we'll be talking about today, Gregg v. Ameriprise Financial, in which the court held that proof of a violation of the Pennsylvania Consumer Protection Law may be established by applying a strict liability regime for deceptive business practices causing consumer confusion or misunderstanding. Welcome, Ken. Glad to be here. Yep. So, Ken, before we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about your practice in, in terms of consumer protection? Yeah, actually, uh, um, it started, uh, boy, back in the early 80s. My father came in. He was a trial lawyer. Came into the office. I was just a young associate and said, we have this case here and I don't understand what, what was going on with it, but uh, it sure looks as if uh, the insurance company did something wrong and, and, and sold them a po- an automobile policy in- incorrectly. Long and short of it, they uh, got them to coordinate their health benefits back when that was a thing. In other words, you could get uh, your health benefits paid uh, uh, through your health insurance and through your auto insurance, both if you were in a car wreck. And they sense of... Uh, coordinated benefits statutorily, so that's no longer possible in Pennsylvania. But at the time, it was. And he said, figure something out. And I looked at it. Well, we did not have a bad faith statute back in the early 80s. And uh, so I I was looking at that case law, but I saw there was a a concurring opinion by Chief Justice Nix at the time who talked about common law fraud would still be a claim. And I said, well, why not statutory fraud and common law fraud? And I had recently settled a, a small automobile engine repair case that was never done correctly and used the consumer protection law and started figuring out how that statute worked. So that first case was called Pecular versus Eichen State Farm, the the first insurance case. And I applied the consumer protection law to the sale of insurance. And at the time, I didn't know that was a thing you could not do. I was just a young lawyer. And I said, seems like it it's a good or a service and should fit the statutory definition. But after they got thrown out of court on preliminary objections and then the Superior Court reversed, 
agreed with me, and uh, all of a sudden I became a consumer protection lawyer. I didn't realize it was a big thing, but uh, <laughs> you know, the uh, petition for allowance of appeal filed by the insur- the insurance company had an amicus brief attached from the insurance industry of Pennsylvania or something words to that effect. And they said we do four billion dollars of business in the Commonwealth. And I figured it, it well, I'm going to lose this argument, but the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, refused the allowance of appeal, the Superior Court opinion upheld. And uh, that has been the genesis of all these cases I've been fighting uh, with uh, insurance companies and sales practices ever since. Wow, that's that's very interesting. So it's almost like thinking of the old uh, Commonwealth versus um, Monumental Properties case that expanded the CPL into um, landlord-tenant law. Uh, you know, a whole birth of claims was created, and it sounds like you were there for the uh, the delivery of, uh, as you say, uh, an entire industry's uh, regulation. Yes, uh, I mean, because the, the other big fight back then was, well, the bad faith, we don't have that. We have an unfair insurance practices act and there's no private right of action. That controls all sales practices. Consumer protection should not overlay uh, when there's already one statutory uh, scheme in place for the, for the unfair insurance practices act. Uh, again, the Superior Court rejected that argument also. So they allowed for the private right of action to go forward. So, uh, Ken, before we jump into Greg Proper, um, maybe we could start with a little bit of uh, legislative history with respect to the um, Pennsylvania Unfair Trade Practices and Consumer Protection Law. Um, as I understand it, it was enacted uh, way back in 1968 uh, with a private cause of action added in 1976. And back then, the statute prohibited in addition to a number of uh, specific deceptive business practices, quote unquote, fraudulent conduct that caused consumer confusion or misunderstanding uh, and in the ensuing years, the courts really ran with the term fraudulent. Is that right? Yeah, that's uh, a fair statement. Um, and, and I'll get into the, the fraudulent aspect in a second. But first, I want to say that how the statute came into being. The Federal Trade Commission was having problems with so much consumer fraud going on in our country that they could not do enough enforcement actions. So they approached all the state's attorney generals and said, would you enact – uh, uh, individual state-based uh, consumer protection laws based upon the Federal Trade Commission Act. And they all got together as a national association of attorneys generals, and they put together variants of the unfair trade practices and consumer protection law. There seems to be three variations of it across the country. Uh, some states are virtually identical to Pennsylvania, and others have a lot of similarities. So that started in 68. Our attorney general got so overwhelmed that they went back to the legislature, attorney general went to the legislature and said, hey, open this up to a private right of action so individuals can bring cases also because we don't have the manpower to enforce this statute. And that's what happened with the amendment in 76. And at that time, <clears throat> there were 17 subparts that you could sue under, and the 17th was the catch-all, which is where the fraudulent conduct came into play. And what happened, interestingly, there was a, a dichotomy, a split between the Commonwealth Court and the Superior Court. Um, the Commonwealth Court, all the way back in 1971, I believe it was, before the statute was even passed, started getting into the concept of what is meant by a uh, uh, the capacity to deceive or what is deceptive conduct. And that was first actually defined in 1971 in Commonwealth versus Hushtone Industries, which is under the old 1968 version of the statute. That got followed continuously all the way up and through the Supreme Court in the Golden Gate case uh, back in 2018, or was it 19? Anyway, anyway, it was very recent, a Supreme Court decision, where they 
adopted the definition of uh, deceptive practices. And in the Golden Gate case, they cite the Commonwealth versus uh, People's Benefit Services. Well, the People Benefit Services case got it from the Hushstones case all the way back in 1971. So that definition has stayed consistent since the early 70s. The Superior Court, on the other hand, latched onto the fraudulent conduct language in the catch-all statute and said you had to prove all the elements of common law fraud. Though no court, when it came down to it, actually required all the elements. They proved uh, they, they required causation, reliance on, upon the misrepresentation, and then actual damages were the only three elements of common law fraud that are actually ever applied in any of the opinions. So, but, but, so because of that dichotomy, you have a line of cases coming up one way through the Commonwealth Court, which is a little easier to prove a consumer protection violation, but that's through the Attorney General. And then you had the private right of action, which was supposed to mirror the Attorney General action, not to be different. So the courts were struggling over how do you put these two together and ultimately led to the amendment in 1996, which was designed to bring the two courts together, though it did not initially do that. Yeah, and and Ken, if we could talk just a little bit about first of all, the, the legislative change in 1996 goes from fraudulent conduct to fraudulent or deceptive conduct. Now, it's my understanding that that was not particularly well received uh, initially, and some courts even uh, just seemingly ignored it. Is that correct? Yeah. You, you, again, you had the history of the, the – well, the Commonwealth Court embraced it immediately in the, in the Commonwealth of Perkadani, saying very clearly that the deceptive conduct, uh, you can't ignore the language. It has to be applied. It means something other than fraudulent and you know, then goes through some of the history and deceptive is something lesser than fraudulent. Well, the Superior Court continued to fight that and they, 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 there was a resistance there for some reason. And it took a number of years uh, before eventually, I think it was in the Bennett v. Masterpiece Holmes case, where the Superior Court finally said, hey, no, <laughs> this is wrong. Uh, we've been interpreting it wrong for all these years. We've been, we've been applying the pre-amendment language to the post-amendment uh, uh, cases, and that was wrong of us to do so. And that's when they started catching up and, and started joining, but that still did not resolve the issues. You mentioned that uh, you know this this kind of dichotomy exists for a, a pretty long period of time with no apparent reason. Do do you think? Um, well, let me just ask: Do you have any understanding of why the Superior Court might have been so resistant to that change? Do you think it's something institutional, or just um, you know sometimes when attorneys and then judges see words like fraudulent, they feel a little more comfortable going back to the common law than than conducting statutory interpretation. I, I have found, generally speaking, that judges are uncomfortable with the consumer protection law. I mean, the older generation of judges, which is shifting and moving now, I mean, they were brought up and taught common law in law school and and then they see it's an anti-fraud statute was passed where they figure, well, I know common law. That's my comfort zone. I'm going to stay within my comfort zone and continue to apply uh, the same understanding I have of the law to this new statute. Yeah. And as a statute evolved, they didn't change their interpretation. Yeah. And do you think to some degree that the, the fact that I believe the private right of action has uh, treble damages of up to, I think it's three times the amount of actual damages plus costs plus fees. Do you think there's something of a floodgates argument uh, or, or at least motivating factor on the bench to, to kind of prevent too much consumer litigation? And obviously that's a subjective term, too much, but too much in the uh, particular judge's point of view. 
I, I've heard noises to that effect. Uh, I, I have no evidence of it, seen no proof of it. There's been no study that confirms anything even remotely close to that. I, I think it's uh, uh, you know one of these presumptions that uh, sounds like it could be a thing, but when it really gets looked at, it's no, it's not there. And, and more importantly, the statute was designed to curb unscrupulous business practices in our commonwealth. And uh, it's something that, uh, you know, the legislature felt very strongly about, and that's why they adopted the statute. And then they allowed for the private right of action because people were being taken advantage of. And, and the judges, uh, slowly but surely, are coming around to understanding that <clears throat> it is a broader statute and it, it, it is designed to protect the consumers, and they need to take an active role in protecting consumers. So um, we're still in the early 2000s, and we've still got the intermediate appellate court split here in Pennsylvania over you know what's what's really happening with this language, deceptive uh, conduct. Does that ever get resolved by the superior court uh, before Greg? Not well. The closest <clears throat> was the discussion in the uh, uh, Bennett case, but it doesn't really close the door because <clears throat> Bennett had some other issues in it that uh, created. It, it didn't clarify the point s- sufficiently enough to get us all the way home. So, quite frankly, it, it wasn't until Greg came back and said, "Look, this is a uh, a, a very specific uh, intent statute." I mean. I mean, excuse me, you do not have to prove intent. It's a strict liability statute. That clarified the point and made it, you know, crystal clear uh, that uh, either, you know, if you violated it, you know, now the court has to take action. If the, It doesn't matter whether the vendor intended or not. There's no language about intent in the statute. That was something that was being infused or added by the courts and it improperly so. And the first case that really clarified that point is, is this great case with against Ameripro. So let's talk about that case in particular. It starts in 2001. Uh, can you tell us a little bit just factually about uh, Ameriprise's conduct here and how that fits into the rubric of fraudulent or deceptive? Sure. Um, how this case came into my office, uh, Ameriprise had a class action against itself on a national basis for deceptively selling life insurance policies for the allegations. And the main allegation uh, is with universal life insurance they were selling it as if it was a whole life insurance. And what the difference is, universal life insurance, the cost of insurance charge goes up every year in the person's life. The older you get, the more expensive it becomes. But in a whole life policy, that's all factored together. So you pay a level premium. It's the same. And so long as you pay your premium, you always have a death benefit. But with a universal life policy, if the agent undersells the cost of the policy, you can purchase it paying a level premium, just like whole life, except you'll end up running out of money when the cost of insurance starts going through the roof about the retirement age. So in other words, you have to pay a lot more money into the policy than the agent was representing. And so people were buying these policies, paying premiums on them for 20, 30 years, and then finding out they had no insurance coverage. So that's the general gist of the the conduct. But but this concept didn't start uh, with Ameriprise. It actually started, first case I filed was in 1991 against Metropolitan Life called Lassoon versus Metropolitan Life. And there were the same business practice. Every major life insurer was doing it in the, in the country. Allegheny County, we had over 600 lawsuits filed against various life insurance companies starting in the mid-90s 
through the early 2000s. And the Merit Prize was sort of the end of that uh, wave of cases. And, and I should say that this is a part of a uh, um, an approach to consumer protection cases that multiple issues were resolved over the course of the various life insurance cases. Greg is sort of the culmination of a number of issues. I had to or- argue in a case called Toy versus Metropolitan Life was what type of reliance was required. And that went to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court uh, and that was decided in 2007, but that case was filed in 1994. There, the court said justifiable reliance is required. Um, and actually, I should go back one step. Pecular versus Eichen State Farm in 1986, consumer protection law was applied to the sale of insurance, So, which I mentioned earlier. But that's when this all started. So then we have the toy case. Then there was Agliori versus Metropolitan Life, which defined what is meant by an ascertainable loss under the statute. Then the Lassoon case I just mentioned versus Metropolitan Life talked about the measure of damages. Was it just your out-of-pocket loss or can you get reasonable expectation damages? And the court said it's either one, whichever is greater. Then there's a case of the Yarmouth versus New York Life. These are all cases I argued. There, uh, the, the defense wanted an offset applied to the treble damages. And when do you do the offset? Was That was one of the issues in the Yarmouth. It's after the trebling then the offset occurs. Whether treble damages should be awarded is a case I did not argue, but I, I cite too often is Metz v. Quaker Highlands. And that, that talks about the standard of when and why a court should treble the damages. Uh, the burden of proof, I had to argue, in Bain versus Ameriprise. It's the preponderance of the evidence. The defense was arguing for clear and convincing evidence under the fraud standard. And then I said, no, it's a statute. It's preponderance of the evidence. And then what are the expectations of the consumer when you're starting to look at the damages issue? And the reasonable expectations doctrine was applied to consumer protection sales also. And that of all crazy things was in the case of Naus versus General American, which I argued in the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. And that got there because I filed cases against uh, General American in Pittsburgh, They get re- in Allegheny County. They got removed to federal court, and then they got transferred to the class action down in St. Louis. So here I am. I'm arguing 22 cases at one time before a panel of the Eighth Circuit. So I had a judge from Missouri, one from South Dakota, and from North Dakota, and we're arguing Pennsylvania law. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about an out-of-body experience. Uh, But uh, the court did beautifully. I was the first argument of the day, and they allowed me to argue for over 40 minutes. And typically, you only get 15. Wow. Um, and, And it was a unanimous decision. Said, said no reasonable expectations apply. These people were taken advantage of. They didn't have to read the policy. Sent back all the claims back to a state court in Allegheny County. Uh, but that, that was a two-year side adventure in those cases. Uh, then the next issue, is it jury or non-jury for consumer protection? I argued that in Fazio versus Garden Life, Guardian Life, and it was found to be non-jury. And then most recently in Richards versus Ameriprise, uh, do you get your fees for doing appellate work also? And the court agreed with me saying that, wait, under consumer protection, statutory fee shifting does not apply only to the trial. It also applies to any appellate work you have to do on the consumer protection issues. In that particular case, plaintiff won, Ameriprise appealed, came back down. We asked for our fees for the appeal. Ameriprise objected to that. It got appealed a second time. And now we're back down on that after the second time, and we're putting our fee petition uh, is going in now for the uh, and waiting on a decision for the second appeal. So yeah, so all of those issues and there's still more coming down the pike. But yeah, so getting back to so that all leads towards the Greg decision. It's on the back or the shoulders of all those other cases. Leads up to Greg, 
And finally, we got to the issue of intent and does the uh, vendor have to show intent to mislead or or deceive? And the court agreed with me and said no. Yeah. So um, before the court, what were the principal arguments of the parties um, uh, as you see them and, and how did the court resolve them? Well, for the intent issue, um, I actually never had a case prior to Greg where proof of intent was even a question. Uh, typically, that's something that's very simply uh, established. However, in this particular case, the jury said there was no fraudulent misrepresentation, and the jury said there was no negligent misrepresentation, but the court found that there was deceptive conduct. So that brought the issue right to the, to the forefront. Well, wait a second. Don't you also have to prove intent, just like they for the common law claims, it should have to be proved for the consumer protection claim. So usually it just sort of gets gets put in the wash, but here you have a, a split fact finder, and so the, the, the issue is just sort of perfectly teed up at that point. Exactly, exactly. And what was very helpful was the Commonwealth Court had looked at the issue in the TAP Pharmaceuticals case. There was the same thing. They had a fraudulent misrepresentation claim, a consumer, excuse me, and a negligent misrepresentation claim. And the jury went for defense on both of them. And then what was left was deceptive conduct. And the Commonwealth Court said deceptive conduct claim is permitted to go forward. And the Supreme Court affirmed that. But when it came up in Greg, the same issue, defense was arguing, well, TAP Pharmaceutical only applies to the public right of action of attorney general and not under the private right of action to a, to a private citizen. So that, that was another hurdle we had to overcome. Which doesn't really make a, a whole lot of sense when you, you think about it, given the, the same sort of statutory language that's that's being used in, in both sections, right? Well, yeah, exactly. And that's what the great case it does. It merges the two halves of the statute into one whole, uh, and, which is how the legislature always intended it. Um, the, the only remaining significant distinction is the proof of reliance. And under the attorney general, they don't have to prove a consumer relied upon deceptive advertising. They can just say it's deceptive advertising and stop it. Whereas in a private right of action, the consumer must state that they relied upon that deceptive ad by buying the, the product. Uh, I'm just using deciding as an example. And why I do that? Because there's been a number of class actions that were attempted and they all were shot down because the, you could not prove class-wide reliance. Whereas an attorney general class it's not an issue. Yeah, and so I I kind of want to uh, push on that a little bit because in Greg there's some conversation about the requirement of justifiable reliance deriving from the causation element uh, in the statute, and there's also language in which uh, the court refers to it being upon you know a burden upon the the vendor to eradicate business practices. This isn't that are are deceptive in nature. It's not the burden of the consumer. I, I guess my question is, do you see that as potentially winnowing away at at least certain aspects of the justifiable reliance requirement? It, it appears to create a crack in that uh, uh, wall. I argued parallel to this issue in Toy versus Metropolitan Life. The statute clearly is a causal connection. In other jurisdictions, the uh, the language as a result of is means causal connection. doesn't mean justifiable reliance. And I argued that to the Supreme Court. And indeed, there was, a, I want to say, a 1968 decision of the Supreme Court interpreting the words as a result of to mean a causal connection in a different statute. Supreme Court did not go with me on that point. Uh, so I, I argued in the alternative that there are different levels of reliance and that the lowest level of reliance is something called statutory reliance, which is another way of getting to a causal connection that you do not have to show justifiable reliance. 
And the court, uh, again, did not go with me on that in the toy case. However, uh, it's an issue that is contrary uh, to most consumer protection laws across the country. Typically, where you see a requirement of justifiable reliance with with the statutory claim is where there are punitive damages could be awarded under the statute. Where there are only remedial damages, like Pennsylvania has, or treble damages are remedial. In all of those statutes across the country, there is no justifiable reliance requirement. So I'm hoping that as the evolution keeps progressing forward with the understanding of these types of claims under the statute, that we can get to that point that justifiable reliance could eventually be removed. Because again, it's not in the language of the statute. It's not there. Well, um, thank you so much, Ken, for, for taking the time. Uh, it's it's definitely uh, apparent that uh, Greg has been uh, something of a, a capstone so far in, in a, a career that's spent, you know, really beefing up consumer protection across Pennsylvania. And uh, as a consumer, thank you for doing that um, over the last couple of decades. You're welcome. Yeah. And it wasn't by design. It was out of necessity. When you have a, a large number of cases ongoing and any one of them, I could lose all of them if I lost the, one of those consumer protection issues. So you had to fight them. Uh, and, and a lot of them, we would win the trial when the insurance company was appealing them. So a lot of these issues got developed because of insurance companies filing appeals. Which, or, But there were some instances where we were thrown out of court on summary judgment, and we had to bring up an issue and uh, got it presented that way. But yeah, um, I had no idea when I started down this path that it would be so many issues involved and how many unanswered questions there were with the statute. So it's been a journey. I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. So the ACBA is hosting a webinar on the Greg decision where Ken will be part of a panel of attorneys and a judge uh, discussing the impact of Greg on how to prove a uh, unfair trade practices consumer protection law claim. Uh, that'll occur on Tuesday, April 27th uh, from 2 uh, p.m. to 4 p.m. Ken, where can folks uh, find more information about that? Just go to the Allegheny County Bar Association website, and they have uh, uh, you know a little spot to click on for CLE, and uh, you, know, you can pull it up. They'll, they'll have a list of the upcoming uh, uh, events that they're having. And look for the April 27th, and you'll see the uh, webinar there. Excellent. Thanks again, Ken, for taking the time and uh, uh, joining us here today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. That's all for this first episode of The Standard of Review. If you like what you've heard and you want to hear more, please subscribe for new episodes in your podcatcher of choice. If you'd like to reach out, whether to suggest a topic or a guest for a new episode, you can find me on the web at woodslawoffices.com or find Woods Law Offices on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on The Standard of Review. Thanks for listening to The Standard of Review. This episode has been brought to you by Woods Law Offices, raising the bar for Pennsylvania appeals. Check them out at woodslawoffices.com. 